Exodus chapter 7, starting at verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into the snake, into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of Hebrews has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will, it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink the water. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile. And all the water has changed was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship him. Worship me, sorry. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will come on you and your people and all your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with, your sta with staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same things by their secret acts. Arts. They also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave to you the honour of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people, that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs, except for those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said. Moses replied, it will be as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you in your houses, your officials and your people, and they will remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh. And the Lord did what Moses asked. 
The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, in the fields. They were piled into heaps and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. They did this. And when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came on people and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. I'm sure most of us have had the experience when we went through schooling, however long ago that was, of being introduced to ideas and concepts in a simple and understandable way. And then as you grow up, you're told by your teachers, things aren't quite as simple and straightforward as we said last time. And it's that experience, isn't it, as, as you mature, that you can understand the great complexity and wonder of the world with greater degrees of clarity because your maturity means that you can begin to see those things. Now, I don't know about you, but, but I found that incredibly frustrating. I, I would tend to think, well, hang on, why don't you just tell me that to start with? But of course, as you mature a bit yourself, you understand that you wouldn't have understood it if it were explained to you in that degree of depth back then. But now you can, because maturity makes it possible to understand greater complexity. And as we come to God's word, I think there's something similar that can happen for us. Maybe we've heard the Bible because we've been taught God's word at home, or maybe we've had the privilege of coming along to to church and hear it in Sunday school and other settings, or Or maybe we just know something about the Bible, perhaps uh, from RE at school. And the things we've learnt, some of them might be good and true, many of them will be. But as you dig in, what you find is that there is greater depth the more you dig. And as I've been working through the plagues uh, this week and a bit last week, the thing that struck me is the way in which there is so much detail and depth in the account of the plagues as we look at them together. And and I guess as as I came to it, maybe as you come to it, we we know perhaps the children's Bible story version of the plagues, don't we? Maybe you took the challenge last week of naming all ten over lunch. Maybe you did. And, And maybe you know the sequence of the ten. And not just that, you know the pattern that happens between them, that Moses appears before Pharaoh and he he issues a challenge to let God's people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And and Moses says, well, a plague is going to come. And and it goes round and round and round like that. So you know the sequence and you know something of the pattern. And there's good in that. We can learn big lessons from that summary. But as we work through the plagues together, we're going to break them down a bit. And we're going to try and dig deeper and get into some of the detail. And one of the reasons for that is that is an important discipline for us if we know and love the Lord Jesus, that we would do that as we study God's word. Because I think 
one of the reasons why we can stop enjoying the Bible as we study it is because we don't read slowly and reflect as deeply as we should. If we're honest, and I can be like this, we can read the Bible, we can skim scripture a bit like our emails or a newsfeed, can't we? But there is great good in digging deeply. And as we do that, we will find the Bible is full, is full of great treasure that will continue to nourish and sustain us as we go on with the Lord. So we're going to jump in this morning to Exodus chapter 7 and 8. We're going to look at the first three plagues that are recorded for us there. And if you're with us last week, we were noticing that, that the plagues break down into threes. One to three, four to six, and seven to nine. And the tenth kind of sits on its own. And within each of the threes is a pattern. Because the first three plagues are brought about by the staff of Aaron. They seem to affect uh, similar areas. The first three seem to affect the, uh, the waters of the land and then the land itself coming from the land to affect the people. And in each of the threes, there seems to be this deliberate pattern that the first one, Moses comes and stands before Pharaoh in the morning. The second one in the three, we just read that he comes and stands before Pharaoh. And then the third one in the three, there is no standing before Pharaoh. There is no warning. The plague just comes. And as we work through one, two, and three, follow that pattern. Four, five, and six, follow it. And seven, eight, and nine, all follow it. So there's a deliberate arrangement to the plagues. And that's how I'm uh, planning that we'll work through them. But whilst there is uh, that difference and development as we work through, there is one big message through the plagues. One big message that we saw last week, and it's this, that in each of these plagues, the Lord is declaring that he alone is the Lord God. They show us that The God of the Bible is the Lord. But in each of the plagues, there's different ways in which we see that. And as we dig into detail, we will try and get into that. So God is revealing his character through these plagues. And the first thing I want us to do this morning is to see three things God is teaching us about his character in the first three plagues. But also, alongside this revelation of the character of God, there is, well, we get to see how different people interact with what they learn about God. And our particular interest will be around Pharaoh, but also around his magicians, and later as he worked through, around his officials. And one of the reasons for why we have a, a narrative here, not just statements about who God is, but a narrative, is so that we might see Not just, and crucially, but but crucially who God is, but also that we might see how we should rightly respond to this God. So that's the two things we're going to do this morning. We're going to see three things that these three plagues reveal about the character of God, how they declare that the Lord is the Lord God. And then we're going to see three ways in which we shouldn't respond to this revelation as we look at Pharaoh and the magicians, and they will point us to the right way of responding to this great God who is making himself known through these amazing events. So let's launch in as we see who is the Lord. We're going to have two points. Who is the Lord? How should we respond to him? 
And in each of those two points will be three subpoints. That's the structure. So who is the Lord? First thing, the Lord is the sustainer of life. He is the sustainer of life. And here we look at the plague of blood. Whereas you read in the last uh, section in chapter 7 of how God turns the Nile into blood. And he does that to show that he alone sustains life. He alone sustains and keeps our lives. Now, for us to understand how God is teaching this with this plague, we need to understand a bit about how the Egyptians saw the Nile. And the Nile was hugely important in Egypt. It brought not only water for them to drink, but it also brought food because there were plenty of fish that swam in the Nile. But not only that, the water that they could drink was the same water they could use to irrigate the crops in the fields. So the Nile was bringing so much to Egypt to make it this incredibly fertile and productive area. And because the Nile was fed uh, not just by rain, but by, well, well, by rain, but the water was stored in lakes at different points down the line, what it meant was that they weren't dependent upon rainfall in Egypt to irrigate their crops. Because the Nile at different seasons would flood and, and the floodwaters, they built these canals so that they could irrigate all this huge region around the Nile. So they didn't have to rely on annual rainfalls in their area. And it turned Egypt into this incredibly lush and fertile region in the middle of a desert. Now, if you want to get a sense of what that's like, if you uh, go and look at Google Maps or any online map and you look at Egypt, and turn on the satellite view, and you look at that. Don't do it now on your phones, by the way, but <laughs> do it another time. It's astonishing to see it, because what you have is you have this, this, this desert, which is all yellow, golden yellow, and then going up through it, you have the Nile, which is an incredibly lush green color. It's amazing. and just It goes up through, and then as it comes to the top, you have this sort of branching out like you would the branches of a tree, as the water spread into this amazing delta called the Nile Delta. And it was, it was hugely, hugely fertile as a re region. It was so significant that, of course, the Egyptians could farm enough food, not just for themselves, but for others. We know elsewhere that, that Joseph, for example, stored up food, didn't he? And, he? and he sold it to others. So it's this amazingly fertile region. So the Egyptians saw Nile, as, as, saw the Nile, as something that brought life and sustenance to their lives in Egypt. It was vital to them. It was a source of confidence and stability. Now, there's, there's some debate about the archaeology, but it seems to be that the Egyptians did worship the Nile and even had gods that they thought controlled the Nile. And what we see really clearly in this passage is that a Nile really mattered to Pharaoh. Because if you look down at verse 15, when Moses is going to go and appear before him, where does he go? He is told to go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river so that he can, verse 15, confront him on the bank of the Nile. Now, Pharaoh could be going out to wash. He could be going out to worship. Or, or he could be going out just to watch and to see if the Nile waters were beginning to rise up as he was looking forward to that flooding that would come that would irrigate the whole region. Whatever he's out there, what is clear from the text is the Nile matters to Pharaoh because it mattered to Egypt. 
And so as Moses appears before Pharaoh and he repeats that command, that unchanging command of God, what is it? Let my people go that they may worship me in the wilderness. And then he says, if you will not, he threatens to turn the Nile to blood. That's a serious thing that that the Lord is putting before him. Of course, Pharaoh doesn't listen. We know Aaron raises his staff over the waters. He strikes the Nile and this great river, and not just the river, the streams that flowed from it, the canals the Egyptians had built to irrigate their, their fields, the ponds, the reservoirs, all the waters in those water quarters in Egypt, they all turned to blood. Living where we live, I think we need to think about what this would have been like. This is not like the Len, okay, or the River Avon. Right? This is the Thames, okay? Think of the Thames flowing through under the huge river turns to blood. And it's not just the Thames, is it? It's all the other canals and streams and watercourses, and they all run with blood. The Egyptians are surrounded by it. There is no escape. The fish die. The smell is horrible. People can't drink the water. They dig wells by the side of it to try and find fresh water that isn't blood. Now, some people want to try and find natural explanations for these amazing miracles. So some might say, well, maybe what's going on here is silt is getting in, red silt from somewhere, and it's turning all the waters to blood. And actually, they go further than that. They don't just try and find a naturalistic explanation of this miracle, this plague. They, they do it for many of them. So they say, well, okay, maybe what's going on is the Nile goes silty for those seven days. And then, because it's all silty, the frogs that lived in the Nile didn't want to be there anymore. So they come out, and they start filling Egypt up because they don't want to be in the, the silty waters of the Nile. And then, well, the frogs die for whatever reason. And because they die, then you've got these gnats that start to, well, gravitate towards dead frogs, and you've got the flies, and, and the gnats and the fries take the disease from the dead frogs, and they put it on the animals, and so the livestock die, and then they, put it, they get to the people's skins, because they get bitten by these animals, and then they get something on their skin that gives them boils, and, and it goes on from there. Now, <laughs> that's not what Exodus says. It's not what it says. The text says it was turned to blood. It's not a naturalistic event that even God is using. I don't think it's that, even that. This is an amazing demonstration of God's power. And it's the same with all the plagues. They appear and disappear as God wills. They come through the command of Moses. They're not natural events that God is in some way piggybacking on. Real supernatural things. God is showing his control over creation and he's demonstrating it to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. The very river that they thought gave them life brings death and stench. And it's this astonishing reversal. If we, if we think back to Exodus chapter 1, what did Pharaoh try to use the Nile to do? kill the Egyptian baby boys. His final attempt to deal with the growth of the, sorry, the Israelite baby boys, forgive me, to deal with the growth of the Israelites was what? To command that they all be thrown into the Nile. And the very thing that Pharaoh seeks to use 
to oppress the people of God. God turns on Pharaoh and the Egyptians and uses in this way to punish Pharaoh. Now, as you remember what the Nile meant to Egypt, we can learn what God is showing in this miracle. Because the Nile gave the Egyptians and Pharaoh confidence and stability. No weather forecasting. They don't need it. They've got the Nile. They don't lead to live hand to mouth and year to year, harvest to harvest, as many did in the ancient Near East, because they've got the Nile. The Nile protected them and insulated them from many dangers. And so, as the Lord God shows his power over the thing they thought sustained their lives, what is he saying? He's saying that he is the sustainer of their lives, not the Nile. So friends, as we think about this passage ourselves today, what's the great question for us? Well, it takes us back to that issue of what the way the Nile sustained the lives of the Egyptians. And the question for us as we look at this plague is, where is your Nile? Or what is your Nile? What do you trust in to sustain your life? Secure job? Wealth you've accumulated over the years? Good health and strength? Doctors, medication that sustains your life? Parents who protect you? A spouse who is your rock? Answer the question, I am going to be okay because, and your answer has shown you what is your Nile. You found your Nile. And this plague teaches us to turn from trusting in other things to sustain our lives other than the Lord. Now, now it's not that we abandon those things. All of the things we spoke about just there are good things. Our jobs are good. Wealth is a blessing from God. Health is a good thing. And we give thanks for good doctors and, and family who help us. But the issue is this. Do we trust in them ultimately to sustain our lives? Augustine helpfully put it like this. He, when he was describing Christian virtue, he said, Christian virtue is rightly ordered desires. Sorry, loves, forgive me. Rightly ordered loves. It's not that we don't love and give thanks for those many things, but they're not the ultimate thing. Christian virtue is rightly ordered loves. So we trust God alone as the sustainer of our lives. We enjoy his blessings, but in a rightly ordered way. He alone is the ultimate sustainer of our lives. That's the first thing that comes out about who God is. The second thing that comes out as we think about who God is, not only is he sustainer of our lives, he has no rivals. He has no rivals. The second sub-point on that first point. Now, here we're going to look more quickly, more briefly, at the plagues of the frogs and the gnats, because in the uh, other rivals might mimic God's power, but as they do that, they always come up short. Now, Pharaoh's magicians had copied what Moses and Aaron had done, hadn't they? So they had been able to turn, in some way, water into blood. They'd done it by their secret arts. But for the next two plagues, 
we see in the case of the frogs and the gnats that their power is less than God's power because God has no rivals. Now, in chapter 8, we notice the Egyptians can, uh, the Egyptian magicians can create frogs. So chapter 8, verse 7, but the Egyptian magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Now, that's probably not particularly hard given how many frogs are around, but... (laughs) There's loads of frogs about, and and in some way, by their secret arts, the Egyptians, magicians, can mimic God's power. But notice, that is not enough for Pharaoh, because what does Pharaoh want? He doesn't just want frogs to be created. What does he want to do? He wants the frogs gone. He wants to be free of the frogs. And that shows us that this plague is a massive problem. We're not just talking about a few more frogs around the pond, okay, at certain times in the year. That's not what's going on here. This is a massive infestation. You know, look down at verse uh, three and four of chapter eight. You'll see the Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up on your palace and in your bedroom and on your bed. Just think what that would be like. You know, frogs croaking while you're trying to, I mean, I wear earplugs, but I'm sure that wouldn't work to drown out these frogs that are all around. And, and not just there, look, they're going to come into the houses of your officials. So they're going to affect Pharaoh's house. They're going to affect the officials' houses. They're going to come uh, <laughs> into your ovens and your kneading bowls. Now, this is where, if you've got a children's Bible at home, and you can remember the story, the, the illustrators go, have lots of fun with this, don't they? You've got pictures of you know stirring the food and frogs jumping into it and baby trying to eat and eating the frog rather than the chicken drumstick or whatever they've been given. So, you know, but, but just think of it, how teeming it would have been. Well, in the way they were teeming around the, around, the, around the land. And then, verse 9, Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron, and he says, pray to the Lord, sorry, verse 8, pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Moses agrees, verse 9, Notice what he says. I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you and your house may be rid of the frogs except those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said. Moses replied, it will be as you say. Why? So that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Do you see it? God has no rivals. And the way in which God shows this to Pharaoh is he gives him what Moses describes as the honor of being able to say when the frogs are going to go. Moses prays that they would go tomorrow. And they go as Pharaoh asks. God answers Moses' prayer, but notice how they leave. They don't just hop back into the Nile, do they? That would have been the the neat way of doing it. And I I don't think I've seen a children's Bible with this picture. Because what happens, you know? Piled up frogs. Where are they? Courtyards, houses. I mean, well, I don't know. If you want to think about it, think about it. The stench. It, would have been, it was horrendous. And why does God do it that way? Well, maybe it's this, to remind Pharaoh and the Egyptians that he alone has the power to deal with these frogs. He has no rivals to his position and his power. And it's exactly the same as we look at the gnats, the third plague, because they come when Aaron strikes the dust of the ground with his staff, and the gnats come upon the people and the animals, and the Egyptians are being eaten alive. But this time, 
just like the magicians could, last time they could create the frogs but couldn't remove the frogs, here when it comes to the gnats, they can't mimic what's going on. They can't copy. The text is really clear. They could not make the gnats. They have some power by their secret arts, whether it's by trickery or by power from Satan or demons, but it's not the same as the Lord's power. So friends, here's where this plague, these two plagues, challenge us. God has no rivals. And the question that comes to us is, have you and I grasped the unrivaled position and power of the Lord God? You know, the Egyptians were great polytheists. They had many gods with competing powers. And in our day, that is the narrative for some, isn't it? People say that the God of the Bible is one God among many. And we're told that we can worship him as long as we worship and acknowledge other gods too. That is wrong. He is unrivaled in his position and his power. So we cannot accept other gods in the names of tolerance because that is a denial of biblical Christianity. The Lord alone is God. He has no rivals to his position and his power. That's the second thing we see. God is the sustainer of life in the plague of the blood and God has no rivals in the plagues of the frogs and the gnats. And then here's the third thing about God. He is surprised by nothing. Because having worked through each of the three plagues thus far, we notice a pattern emerging, and there are patterns. Because in each plague, God challenges Pharaoh. Pharaoh does not obey his command to let the people go. And then each plague ends with a statement about Pharaoh's heart. This is a repeated bit. He will not obey the command. He refuses, and we get a statement that varies a little bit, but about Pharaoh's heart. We're told that he would not listen. And then one phrase is always the same. Just as the Lord had said. It's there. Look down at verse 7.22. End of the verse. Just as the Lord had said. Look at verse 15. End of the verse. Just as the Lord had said. And then 8 verse 19, just as the Lord had said. Repeated again, 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 three times. Why? To highlight that God is not surprised by Pharaoh's response to his power. He is not surprised. He is not surprised by all and any human rebellion. And that will be an important lesson for the Israelites as they go forward, because they will meet other Pharaohs. They'll meet other pharaohs outside of them in in the kings of the Ammonites and the Moabites and the many other nations that come and try and attack them. And they'll need to remember that God is not surprised. He is in control. They'll, They'll meet other pharaohs not outside of them. He'll meet them within them because there'll be evil kings who will rule God's people in sinful and horrible ways. And what will they need to remember? That God is not surprised by human rebellion. He is not surprised by rebellious, evil rulers. He is not surprised by any evil in our world. And that is a lesson we need to remember today. Because there is so much about our world that is fearful and uncertain. Many things have happened, are happening, 
and good happen to God's people. And they'll be hard and painful. But God is not surprised. I wonder this week where it is you need to remember in what's happened in your week that God is not surprised by anything that happens in your life. Whether it's an ongoing struggle with a painful illness or a diagnosis that you've had or you're waiting for or a sadness in your family or or a difficult work situation or a car accident or a house sale falling through or a, a test score that wasn't what you hoped it would be. Where is it, friends, that we need to remember that God is not surprised because he is Lord. He is Lord. He rules over all. He is working through it all. And in his wisdom, he doesn't always give answers why, but he calls us to trust him through it all. To know, and this is a repeated thing as we're going to see as we go through, to know that he is the Lord. To look to him by faith and trust him in the midst of it all. Looking to him alone to sustain our lives, to, to not turn to other gods and to trust his sovereign control. That is what we need to remember as we see that he is surprised by nothing. We trust him. Now this right response to this revelation of God that we've been thinking about there as we see those three things about God is brought out into even greater detail as we know how it contrasts to the response of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. So we've seen God has shown us this three things about himself from these plagues about who he is, showing that he is the Lord. Now, and more briefly, God's word is going to be a mirror to our hearts. And we're going to ask the question, how should we respond to this God, therefore? What's our response? And the first thing we see is we should not settle for counterfeits. Do not settle for counterfeit gods. Because there are some who, seeing something of this revelation of God, as we've seen today, And they see and they recognize the power of God, but they are content to find something like God that offers inferior replication. Now, where do we see it in that passage? Well, I I think we see it as we go back to the first plague. Because after the waters of Egypt are turned to blood, Pharaoh sees his magicians doing the same thing, even if it's on a smaller scale. And he is content, therefore, not to trust the Lord, and instead, keep his confidence in his magicians. Now, you can understand why I might have done that. The magicians didn't make any demands like the Lord, did they? It would have been costly for Pharaoh to have acknowledged that the Lord is God. Because, well, he would have had to have let the Israelites go then, wouldn't he? But Pharaoh settles for a lesser copy. A counterfeit that mimics God's power, but that isn't a genuine article. People do that today. When I was uh, growing up, uh, because of what my parents did for a job, we had the opportunity to go to Hong Kong one time. And one of the amazing things about Hong Kong was just how you could buy anything and everything there. But so much of it was counterfeit. And you know, what struck me as a teenager going around, you could spot the counterfeits but you didn't care because you bought them because they were almost as good as a real thing, but a lot cheaper. 
they gave you a lot of what you would have got if you'd gone for the real thing, but it wasn't as costly to have had them. Is it not the same today with how many people think about religion? How many people will happily settle for something less than the God of the Bible? And so they flee to a kind of religion. They flee to perhaps a spirituality that offers something of what they're looking for. It gives them inner peace. It, it helps them find balance. It, it helps them be positive about life. And they go there perhaps also because those counterfeits ask for less. But they give less as well, friends. Counterfeit gods cannot save you. They offer something, but it's not salvation. They cannot deal with your sin. They cannot offer you eternal life. Only Christ can save you. And so don't settle for counterfeit gods. Trust in him alone. Have faith in him alone. Follow him alone. Nothing, settle for nothing less than him. And all that he offers, know that he is the Lord. Don't settle for counterfeit gods. First, negative response. Second negative response is do not treat the Lord like a service. Now, this warning comes to us as we think of how Pharaoh responds to the plague of the frogs. Because as the frogs come upon Egypt, and we, all that that meant for Egypt, they, Pharaoh's beginning to feel something of the judgment of God, isn't he? It's coming upon him more and more significantly. And there's this progression through the plagues where it gets worse and worse and worse. And Pharaoh comes to Moses, calls Moses to come before him with Aaron, and he asks Moses to pray for him. You'll notice that there in verse 8, he uses the name the Lord. Isn't that striking? Pray to the Lord to take away the frogs from me and my people. So he seems in some way to be acknowledging God's power. But of course, once the frogs are gone and Pharaoh sees that there is relief, what does he do? No more interest. <laughs> he treats God like a service provider. Someone who offers help when he needs it. Because he's a customer. And he wants the service provider to, fight to help him and to take away the frogs. But once he gets what he wants, he has no more interest. And there are some today who treat the God of the Bible like that. I'll flee to him in a crisis when I need him. But otherwise, I'm okay, thanks. It's even more dangerous a thing given our therapeutic culture, which is all about me. And we can treat God like that, friends. That is not right. That is not a saving relationship with the Lord. God is showing his power and his character so that we might know him as the Lord. And that word know is relational. Doesn't mean that someone you just go to for a service now and then when you need it. It is about a living, daily relationship with the Lord. That is what God is calling for here. He's not a service provider. He's the king of the universe, friends. 
And that means that we recognize him as king over our lives. We, it means that because he's king, he tells us what is right and wrong. And so we come, we confess our sin before him. We, we trust in the savior he has provided and we live every moment for him and for him alone. The God of the Bible is not a service provider. He is our king. And then thirdly and finally, in this ways not to respond, do not merely acknowledge him. And and here, just very briefly, note how the magicians do this, because their response to the miracle, sorry, the plague of the gnats, which is a miracle, is there to be a warning to us. As we look down at the final verse, verse 19, because they recognize divine power at work. How do they recognize divine power at work? Look at their words. They say, this is the finger of God. But, but, The word they use for God there is not Yahweh, the Lord, the one who is coming before Pharaoh and challenging him to trust him. That's not the word they use. The word they use is Elohim, which is a more general word for God. And they go no further than that at this point. They merely acknowledge God and his power in some sense, but they don't go to that knowing of the Lord. Now, I know some of the Egyptians left Egypt with the Israelites, and maybe some of the magicians are among them. That would be a great thing if that was the case, but we're not sure, are we? And at this point, what we're seeing is the inadequacy of their response in verse 19. There's something in it because they see God's power, but it's not enough because they don't say, this is the Lord, and they don't respond in faith and trust. And there are many who treat God in a similar way. We, we know that he has authority. We know that he is our king. And so, well, we come to church to acknowledge him and to give a nod in his direction. But we're not interested in this deep relational knowing. This deep, devoted, whole of life knowing that God is calling for here. The kind of knowing that says that you alone are God. The kind of knowing that says that by faith in Christ, we have the privilege of being your people. The kind of knowing that says that I am going to offer up all of my life in glad worship to you. That is what God is calling for here. That is how we should respond to what we're seeing about the Lord. The kind of biblical knowing that's described in Psalm 16 verse 2, which says, you are my Lord. You are my Lord, and apart from you, I have no good thing. That's what God's asking us for this morning. My friends, I don't know where your heart is before the Lord. You do. And if Pharaoh and his magicians could respond to the revelation of God that they have seen with their eyes like this, then surely we should be very careful that we do not respond like them. But instead, we don't settle for anything less than knowing God in Christ. We don't settle for anything less than saying, this is our God. He alone rules my life. I'm going to live for him in every moment, in every second, in everything, and with every breath that he gives me. And so, let us respond to seek to know this God rightly. 
and to obey him gladly.